0: Blind Living Radio is brought to you by HP Ink and Toner Cartridges, precision engineered to work together with your HP printer. IB Milwaukee presents Blind Living Radio, where you'll hear interesting topics, fun stories, and important news about our blind and visually impaired community. It's time now for Blind Living Radio. Welcome to Blind Living Radio. I'm your host, Harley Thomas, in the HP Studio. Ivy Milwaukee is bringing you Blind Living Radio from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and today I have the esteemed honor of having Deborah Ambrell Crandall be with me. I messed up your name, didn't I?
1: No, you, no, you
0: are smiling at me. You
1: handled it okay. I handled it okay. It's a mouthful,
0: you know, but that's okay because mouthful is kind of the topic of today, isn't it? You knew you would work uh, that in, didn't yes, you? Yes,
1: I did. Yes, you Clever. did.
0: I love it. Today we're actually going to talk a little bit about food. I'm not a great cook. I'm kind of a terrible cook, actually.
1: I'm a subpar cook, but I can cook.
0: You can cook? I can. With me, I've got the whole family to cook for, and I have sight, and you are blind, and you cook for your family.
1: Yes, I do. How
0: does that work?
1: Well, I do a lot of basics, like proteins and veggies, and a lot of times with meat, I use the sight of my husband to make sure that it is cooked properly, But overall, I tend to use my sense of smell a lot of times for deciding whether something is fully cooked or not. Chocolate chip cookies, I can always tell when they're cooked.
0: You just eat a couple? No, you
1: can smell them. You can
0: smell chocolate chip cookie when they're done?
1: Yes. If you've made them enough.
0: I don't really make a lot of cookies.
1: What did you have for dinner last night, Harley?
0: I grilled homemade hamburgers. The rest of the family ate tater tots on Monday night, so I didn't have those as I had prepared for for this week, and I think I fed the children fruit cocktail, and they mm. wanted to know where's my salad, where's my carrot, all that other stuff. Wah wah wah! And they said you are so unimaginative, and I said, I wish I was imaginative in cooking as. You and I talked before we got on the air. You Sometimes you wish you did more. You're doing a lot of fish now, though.
1: I am. I'm doing a lot of fish and a lot of veggies. Last night, it was haddock and green beans and a salad. How do you know when that's done? My green beans? Your haddock. Oh, my haddock. Well, I use an electric skillet a lot of times, and it will flake. It'll start to flake, and I have partial vision, so you can tell when it's done because it'll kind of start to flake away if you use a fork. And that's a good fish. That's a good fish.
0: Do you use tartar? Do you make your own tartar? No,
1: I don't do tartar. No tartar? Yeah, I, I just suppose did. if you're
0: trying to be healthy, tartar is kind of anti-health. Yeah,
1: right? I just did lemon pepper. Lemon. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep, and olive oil. You
0: know what? Maybe I'll have that for dinner tonight. It's good. You've inspired me, Deborah. Yay! And you know what, Deborah? That is one of the things we do here on the show is inspire the blind and enlighten the sighted.
1: Absolutely.
0: And it's one of those things that we don't get to talk to a guest as famous as the guest we have today.
1: I can't wait. Christine Ha.
0: Christine Ha, MasterChef Season 3. She was the winner.
1: She's phenomenal.
0: It's very cool. So we should probably get her on the phone and see if she can spend a few minutes with us talking about her life, her future, kind of all the things that she's done. She's an amazing woman. I can't wait to get her on the phone.
2: Hello, this is Christine
0: Ha. Hi, Christine. This is Harley Thomas at Blind Living Radio. How are you?
2: Hi, Harley. I'm good. How are you?
0: I am wonderful, and I also have Deborah Crandall with me.
1: Hi, Christine. Hi, Deborah.
0: Yes, Deborah and I are very excited to talk to you, Christine. Yes, Christine. Just so that you know, I actually am sighted, and Deborah is Is not. Is not. (laughs) Deborah can tell you a little bit about her blindness and, and the onset of it, and she's a cook and a mom and. Takes care of a whole family of folks.
1: Yep. I actually had iritis and uveitis, started to lose my sight when I was about 16, and now I am still a little bit of vision, but it's waning as I age.
0: And Deborah, and Deborah, I know one of the neat things is you have a very professional type job at IB Milwaukee. You are in charge of customer service and inside sales. I am. Which is really cool that you lead a team of. Is it eight?
1: Yep. Eight people? It is eight.
0: Which is kind of fun. And Christine, we watched you way back in season three, right? hmm And we watched you do all those incredible things. And I, I know myself and others around the country were going, how did she do this? And what a great start to launch you into other adventures. It's kind of neat.
2: Yeah, that's very true. I've had a lot of opportunities uh, after MasterChef, and all of it has been really amazing, and there's just been so many things that I got to experience and all the traveling I've got to do, and uh, it's been a whirlwind, actually, but things are good, and I'm much more used to it now. It was My world was turned upside down, I would say, right after it because everything was just so crazy, and I wasn't used to it, but it's been a few years now, so I'm more accustomed to what life is like post-MasterChef.
0: One of the things we were talking about be for your pre chef life is you have a great education kind of different though right with writing and finance how'd you come from there to sure. where you are today how did that transition how did that go
2: Well, that's an interesting story, I think. Uh, Growing up, my parents always kind of put it in me that I needed to be a doctor because that was a respectable profession, according to them. And I would, you know, they thought I would be financially stable so I could take care of them when they're elderly. Uh, But that really wasn't my thing. I wasn't that interested in the medical field. And when I went to college, I actually decided to go into business. So I went to the University of Texas at Austin and majored in finance and came out and actually started working in the corporate world and then I started losing my vision around that time even more so and I had to leave work and then I was diagnosed with neuromyelitis optica or NMO which also caused temporary paralysis in uh, my body so I had to leave work and uh, go on to long-term disability and just leave my position and then after that it took me a while to figure out what I was really meant to do in life I knew that I really I think the corporate world wasn't really for me. I think there was just some part of my untapped creativity that was just pining to get out. And I found I found writing very therapeutic because I've always loved to write. I love, love, love to read. And I was the child that used to be scolded by my parents for reading too much because I wouldn't do anything else. I would neglect my dinner. I would neglect sleeping and everything just to read. And so writing naturally came to me uh, when I was dealing with all these health problems, and it started off as just journal entries and just kind of journaling my experience with the vision loss and the paralysis and the NMO, and then that turned into a personal essay that got published in a very, very small publication, mm-hmm. and then it just kind of grew from there, and so I decided, okay, I think creative writing is where I want to be, so I went back to school at University of Houston to get my Master of Fine Arts in creative writing, and... Cooking kind of fit into all of that just as a hobby, but I decided to try out for MasterShaft. Now, the culinary world has become part of my career as well.
0: Deborah and I, before the show, we were reading some of your poems and we read Girl.
2: Oh, yeah. <laughs> and
0: was, was that a dark time in your life, like when you were struggling with, with sight?
2: I wrote that poem around the time that, yes, I think I was losing my vision. I had more vision when I wrote that poem than I do now. But I in my writing, a lot of my fiction and uh, my poetry, I explore kind of the fact that I straddled two different countries and generations and two different cultures. Because my parents came to the U.S. in 1975 as Vietnamese refugees, and I was born in the U.S. So growing up, I was trying to reconcile a lot of what I knew at home versus what I knew at school, going into American school, but having Vietnamese parents at home. So the foods were different, the way I was raised was different from some of my friends. I think the things we did on the weekend or for the celebrations we had, they were different. So I always kind of grew up wondering what my identity was. And that's something probably you hear from many people who are first or second generation from other cultures moving here to the US. And so that was something that I think I thought about a lot growing up. And that just kind of bled into my creative work, especially in my writing.
1: I thought you brought up a great point on your blog, The Blind Cook. You had an article about a tribute to your mom and her spring rolls. And you were talking about how in elementary school, you just kind of felt so different from everybody else because the lunches that your mom was packing you were so different than the American lunches.
2: Yeah, it's funny because back then it was embarrassing and as a child you are always trying to fit in and make friends and so I was really envious of all the classmates that had the bologna and cheese on white <laughs> bread and an American you know, the, staple, the bags right? bags of Lay's. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I always, always begged for that, like to have that sandwich. And then, and then when my mom conceded and didn't pack me Vietnamese food, she went to the store and bought me bread and some deli meat, but she brought the liver cheese. From Oscar Meyer, that still made oh, me a weirdo boy. because no one was eating liver cheese. And then now, you know, I'm older, and I'm like, I love pate, and I guess that kind of uh, helped me grow that quote-unquote sophisticated palate.
0: That that doesn't really work well for swapping lunches in grade school, does it?
2: <laughs> no, it did not. I'll trade you my liver cheese for your
0: <laughs> Oreo cookie?
1: Yep.
0: That'd be bad, Christina. You brought up a very interesting thing. You mentioned about being different. As you lost your sight, I know lots of our listeners have brought up and has come up time and time again. Within the blind community, sometimes people feel isolated and alone and different, and they don't know where to go or where to get started. Who was your big support as you were losing your sight, and how did you decide, you know what, I can do this?
2: Wow, I had a lot of people, I think, uh, that supported me, that helped me through that time in my life. I had very good friends. From college and high school, that actually came over quite frequently. Uh, I lived alone at the time, so people were concerned that I would, uh, how I would get along in a house by myself. Uh, so I had friends come by all the time to just help me with food, to help me with, go through my bills and the mail. And during the time that I was losing my vision, that's actually when I met my now husband, and he was also very supportive through most of that. And so I'm just very fortunate to say that I've had a very good support network from mostly friends. I had a few family that lived in town. They were helpful as well. But I think most of my family lived in other cities, so they weren't able to be as close in proximity to help me on a daily basis. So I'm just lucky, I guess, that I had really good friends that were willing to take the time to come and help me and just sit there sometimes and just listen to me be upset and moan and groan about like the things I was going through. But in the end, I think I was able to show my friends how to care for other people. And I think they're thankful in that way, too. So I think the dynamics there is kind of a two-way street. And I think we're all just blessed and uh, thankful to have experienced what we've experienced me, even though losing my vision was not an easy time, I think it's made me into a much more compassionate person. And I've learned to really persevere through more in life and to find ways, creative solutions, I think, to adapt to new situations and new paradigms within a life. And I think my friends learned uh, what it is like to uh, also care for someone who is a vision impaired or who needs more help. And it's taught me to be Uh, dependent upon other people as well. I grew up an only child and I think uh, having lost my mom at an early age I, I felt like I had to grow up very quickly and become very independent at an early age and I did not like to depend on other people but losing my vision forced me to learn to depend on other people and accept other people's care and love and I think that's something that's hard for a lot of people to embrace and to learn but something like vision impairment or gaining a disability later in life, I think those are things that people do learn, and it's important to learn.
1: I think being able to depend on others is not a skill that's necessarily built into us. I think a lot of times we try to be as independent and strong as we possibly can, and when we're faced with a disability, you kind of have to accept the help of strangers and friends and family.
0: It's hard for someone to ask for help sometimes, right, Deborah? Yes. And... I know once in a while you'll call me and say, Harley, I really need you to look at this for me and help me out with this. And no problem. Yep. But I know better than to take your arm and say, let's go this way, because you'll be like, nope, I can find my own way.
1: Yep, absolutely.
0: And that's part of the whole independence thing, Christine, that you kind of talked about. And for some of the listeners that might be losing their sight, Christine, do you have any words of advice for them? Just general arching words of advice.
2: I think first I would want to say that I understand to a degree where these people are coming from, how they feel, because I've been in a similar position before. My particular story or experience is not going to be like anyone else's exactly, so I can't say I understand 100%, but I have an inkling of what it's like to lose my vision because I lost my own. And I want to say that I know it's difficult and it's okay to be upset about it. It's okay to grieve uh, your vision because you're losing it. And it, you have to go through the grieving process like with anything else. And so it's okay to feel sorry for yourself and to be upset and to cry and be, uh, be mad about it. But I also think that at some point after that, you need to move on to the next step. And something I realized when I was losing my vision is that the world doesn't stop for you. It keeps on rotating. And you can either drop out of society or you can make the decision, the very conscious decision to get up and put one foot forward and try to start your life over with this vision loss and with this new uh, way of living life. And it's, it's really about learning how to adapt. And Yes, there are some things that you may not be able to do anymore, but you can, most things I would say you can find a way around it and achieve the same result, but there's just changes that have to be adopted, I think, in order to achieve that. So I, it's really about attitude and determination, and I think a lot of people have much more strength and willpower within them than they give themselves credit for, and I think we oftentimes uh, look at ourselves and put ourselves down and think, oh, I don't know how I'm going to make it through this. That's all very normal as human nature. But I think I've seen, you know, I've seen myself and other people who have done even more amazing things with even more obstacles than myself, and if they've been able to do it, I'm sure that a lot of people have that strength within themselves to do the same thing. It's just a matter of making that decision uh, to get up and figure out how to do it.
1: You've kind of used your creativity. I think, both in your writing and in your cooking, but also in how you've approached your vision loss.
2: Yeah, that's very true. I think being creative is really—it's thinking outside the box and it's trying to find new solutions to maybe old questions or new questions, but it's just trying different ways to see what works and what doesn't, and that's about being creative, whether it's through your writing or through other artistic expressions, through cooking, through daily living, through figuring out how to be more independent with vision loss. And I think, you know, creativity is something sometimes society does not give enough credit to, but you really need to be creative because sometimes you do the same thing over and over again and it doesn't work. And then you feel like you want to give up, but there is where there's a will, there's a way.
1: So tell us a little bit about some of your social media that you have out there.
2: Yeah, I enjoy interacting with my fans. My social media uh, presence actually, uh, I mean, it you know, boomed after MasterChef. And so I have a Twitter account, The Blind Cook. I have Instagram, Facebook, and a YouTube channel. And it's just a way, I think, for... Because a lot of the people who followed MasterChef Season 3, they have a lot of questions. They wonder what I do on a daily basis, what it's like to live with vision impairment, what I'm up to now. Uh, They're always asking. So I thought sort of as a way to answer their questions, I... You know, I'm very active on social media. It's me that tweets and Facebook and, and all that. And with YouTube, it's just me and my husband, John. We produce the videos, and we have a lot of fun doing it. And it's my way of answering a lot of their questions because I have some videos on YouTube about how vision impaired people put on makeup because people, a question I always ask is, who does your hair and makeup for events? And I'm, most of the time, I do it myself. So it's not perfect, but I think yep. it's okay. At least I'm told it
0: is. Christine, that's a really popular question that we've had. And we've actually done a couple of shows on makeup application and talked to some blind makeup artists. And, Deborah, you don't have anyone to do your makeup on a daily basis, do you?
1: No, I do not.
0: But you do it all by yourself. I do it all
1: by myself.
0: And you know what? So do thousands of other people. Mm-hmm. Christine, you mentioned, you know, fame a little bit and you, you're doing your own makeup. And winning MasterChef, that was only four years ago. And all the cool things that came, and you said it it came really fast and furious, right? There was money involved, publicity. Then a couple years later, you did a cookbook. Or actually, the next year, you did a cookbook. So the next year, you released Mm -hmm. your first cookbook. It's really exciting how all that happened and, and what you've done with it and been able to, I guess, parlay that into a whole career of promoting yourself as someone to look up to because there are a lot of people that look up to you and we have people here in the office that are like you're talking to christine ha can i talk to her
1: yes it's been all the rage around here it you have been the buzz so
2: well a lot of people you know they they say like oh, it must have been so cool to win MasterChef, and it's so cool that you went on to judge MasterChef Vietnam and you wrote this cookbook, and now you have a TV show, a cooking show in Canada. And it all really is, and I'm thankful for that. But I do understand that there's a bigger picture to all of it, and I think what the purpose of my position is to be able to have a platform uh, off which to advocate for the vision-impaired or the disabled or the socially marginalized, whether it's women or Asian-Americans uh, I think I've just been put in a position where I've been lucky to be the voice for a lot of the people who may not have had the um, ability to stand up for themselves or to raise awareness for, uh you know, their, their situation. So I think, you know, knowing that that's the bigger picture, that's what keeps me going. Because, yes, the beginning was really... Range, having all of a sudden been in the public eye and having people scrutinize me or some people saying I didn't deserve to win because I must have cheated my way to the top.
0: That or, apple pie it's was no good.
2: <laughs> yeah, so there's, right. there's a, it's, a, it's a very weird thing to have experienced uh, all of a sudden becoming sort of famous when I was, you know, before that I wasn't. And um, I think knowing that I've been able to help so many people that I've known and haven't known, I think that is the best thing of all. It's better than winning the prize and the money and the cookbook deal. So mm. for me, I don't know. I just feel very fortunate to, uh, and I need to remember that, and it's helpful when I meet people uh, face-to-face individuals because online I have a lot of fans, and I'm sure to them I just seem like some Far off person because they're talking to me, you know, through my social media or whatever. But when we actually meet, they think, "Oh, you're a real person, and you're you're actually taller than we thought you were, or <laughs> you know, you, you're thinner than we thought you were on TV." And for me, it's kind of the same. I'm like, "Oh, my fans actually exist, and I've actually helped these people make it through a tough time in their lives, or a tough day, or I inspired them to go to cooking school or to learn to read braille." Uh, so I think when I am able to talk to people who express their admiration or they're having watched the show and having it affect them in some way, I think that's just the best feeling. And I think the most amazing experience that can come out of all of this.
0: Christine, are you a Braille reader?
2: I am. I actually learned to read Braille, um, around the, I, a few years ago I was in graduate school for creative writing and, I heard a man who uh, was vision impaired speak, and he was saying how we're not truly literate unless we know how to read Braille. And up until that point, I was in school for, I think, a year or so, or it was very early on in my uh, graduate program, and I was relying on audiobooks because, of course, that's easier way to get everything read, but after he said we are not truly literate until we know how to read Braille. And I thought about it, and I was like, well, how can I graduate with a master's in creative writing and not be literate? So I took it upon myself to learn to read Braille, and I actually really enjoy it. It's It definitely is different than listening to an audiobook because, you, yes, you get the story when you listen to audiobooks, but how you receive that story or how you hear it really depends on how the reader, how their voice is, how they have certain inflections on certain words. where they pause, and so it's not really, I think the story you get is still filtered through their perspective and the way they read the book. So I think to read Braille, it's actually very similar to reading a person with vision reading print. And so I did learn to read Braille. So now I'm fully literate in Braille, and I try to practice every day because my ultimate goal will be to be able to read Braille as quickly as I used to read print.
1: Uh, That's fantastic. You have inspired me because I am a (laughs) non-Braille user. I currently can only go into buildings that are only four stories high because that's about as far as my Braille uh, knowledge goes. But it's something because I, too, had a love of reading when I could see and you, it's just not the same listening to an audio book.
0: Deborah, I can't wait any longer. I have to ask Christine. Is that okay?
1: Yes, please. Okay,
0: Christine. We have to know about Gordon Ramsay. Yes. And the reality TV show Master Chef. Is it real? Is it really that that it hard? Is. is he really that hard on you?
2: Okay, I will tell you something. So first of all, when people say oh, it seems so stressful when we watch the challenge at home, we're really stressed out, we can barely breathe by the end. They say, wasn't it like, was it really that hard? My honest answer is it is that much harder than Uh. what you see at home. Wow. (laughs) So all my friends know that I do not cry that much, but I think under the stress that I was on that show, I'm crying all the time and they captured all of that for television. So I look like I'm always crying (laughs) on the show, but I really don't cry that much. Yeah, I think it's, it is very stressful because, you know, everyone watching at home knows that we have pretty difficult challenges, but what they don't know is sometimes they wake us up at six in the morning and we're not done wrapping until like midnight, and then you're going in day after day after day, not knowing what the challenges are, filming, not knowing what's going to happen, not knowing who's going to go home, not knowing if you're going to cook okay or you're going to get yelled at that day by the judges, and we're sequestered, so we're not allowed to talk to family or friends the whole time we're filming, uh, we're allowed to call home every three weeks for 10-minute monitor phone calls. Wow. So it's, you know, they take up our cell phones, they take up our laptops, uh, even our hotel room keys. So if you have to go do your laundry in the hotel, you have to call someone on the crew to come get you and escort you down to do your laundry. So people don't know that behind-the-scenes stuff. So imagine going through that for months of filming and then oh, on top man. of, like, having to deal with these challenges – that's why I'm saying it is a lot more stressful than it even looks.
1: <laughs> Intense. That is amazing, though. That's how long was the whole filming process? How many months was it?
2: Uh, for my season, I believe it was around two. Wow, two
0: that's a lot of almost emotional punishment. Uh,
1: Six a.m. to midnight. That is a
2: long day. Those really, really long days are rarer. You know, you just don't really know because. They don't tell you your call time or what time you'll be woken up until it happens or like right the night before because now I know because I've been in doing television for some years that I understand that production can be very unpredictable because there's so many moving parts. It really depends on the crew, the equipment. I think in my naivete, in my uh, beginning of, of being in Hollywood, I did not know all of this. So it was kind of huge rude awakening. It's just learning how the world of production works.
0: Christine, I know Gordon probably stole your apple pie recipe. Can you tell us a little about Gordon? Gordon Ramsay as the host of the show, and and did you guys have any camaraderie with that, or was it strictly business all the time?
2: Uh, Gordon is an awesome guy. He is very charismatic, probably one of the most charismatic people I've ever met, which is why he's perfect for television. Uh, the way he is on camera is exactly how he is in real life, but even bigger when the cameras are off and even crazier when the cameras are off. He's always cracking jokes, making us laugh. Um, it'll be like 5 in the morning, and he's like, why aren't you guys awake? Like, why do you guys all look sleepy? Like, I've already gone, like, gotten up and run like six miles or something. So he's just kind of always really pushing people. I think that's his thing, because he's a very hard worker himself. So I think he's always pushing us to be the best that we can be. And he's very funny. I think on our show he might be different than he is on, say, Health Kitchen, because Health Kitchen, they're professional chefs, so they've had formal training and I think he has a certain expectation of people who have gone to culinary school or have worked in a professional kitchen with Master Chef. We're all amateur cooks, so I think he knows that and he is plays more of a mentoring role. So he's not as I guess mean he with doesn't us call as you all them, but he
1: doesn't call you all donkeys, yeah,
2: <laughs> donkeys, yes, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. you know, when we don't perform well, there he will say it, he always speaks his true mind, and I think you know people like that, not everyone can get along with people like that, but I think there's something to say about people who are honest because I think that's what we need to improve ourselves and our craft.
0: Debra this has been maybe one of the most fun shows that we've been having and we have so much I think we need to continue this next week
1: I agree I want to learn a lot more from Christine it has been fantastic thus far
0: and I want to learn more about what's next for Christine Ha and the Master Chef and all the cool things she's done since season three let's do it this is Harley Thomas in the HP studio of Blind Living Radio joined with
1: Debra Ambro Crandall
0: Deborah, thank you.
1: You're welcome, Harley. We'll talk to the rest of our audience. Tune in
0: next week for part two of Christine Haas' interview. Blind Living Radio is brought to you by IB Milwaukee, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Providing employment opportunities for blind professionals since 1952. Learn more at ibmilwaukee.com. Blind Living Radio is brought to you by HP ink and toner cartridges. Precision engineered to work together with your HP printer.
2: I'm Christine Hall, Season 3 winner of MasterChef US. You can follow me at theblindcook.com and you're listening to Blind Living Radio.